Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have been moving in our readings through the beautiful and profound book of Romans, but it has yet been given a sermon. Some pastors uh, will boast that they, uh, it will take them five years to move through the book of Romans, one line at a time, and here we are just racing through it, and it hasn't so much as gotten a mention, so that will change today. We have a brief reading from Romans 9, but I'm going to sort of use that to look a little bit at what comes before it and after it. The major theme of Romans is justification, and a kind of subtopic, you might say, of election. Unlike some other letters of Paul's, Romans is written to a mixed audience that is Jew and Gentile, and um, there is not sort of one topic or a series of burning topics that he's addressing. It's more of an objective letter about a big topic. So he's not writing it white hot with rage, uh, as he is when he writes, say, Galatians, or, uh, you know, uh, pouring out tears of compassion, say, when he writes Thessalonians. This is more of a treatise. In Galatians, for example, he's dealing with the topic of circumcision. So he's dealing with a topic for that group of people. Uh, in Corinth, well, that was the most dysfunctional church in the whole New Testament. So there are all kinds of issues that Paul has to address in his letters to the Corinthians. But the main question of Romans is, how can I be saved? And so the letter is answering questions that are really universal, so universal they apply to everyone. And indeed, the first chapter of Romans is written to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to pagans. And then the second chapter addresses Jews, and the third chapter is kind of back to addressing everyone, and the fourth chapter is kind of back to Jews. Then chapters 5 through 8 is generally considered a kind of subsection, and then chapters 9 through 11 is also considered a kind of subsection. Romans 9 is probably the most controversial of all the chapters of Romans. It's a hotly debated chapter that deals with predestination and election. Conveniently for me, the electionary skips ahead to Romans 10 next week, so we don't have to deal with any of the controversial bits of Romans 9. But the, the controversy revolves around questions of election. That is, if some people are saved and it is a result <clears throat> of God's election, not our works, right? Because remember, if we're not doomed by our evil works, then we're not saved by our good works either. Uh, well, then what are we to make of those who are not saved? Did God know before the creation of the universe uh, who his elect people would be and therefore who the damned would be? And was God just content to sit there and let it happen? Well, I'm not going to answer that question here. Uh, that's a whole debate unto itself, a debate that has been had many times, and we'll actually perhaps host a very similar debate on that topic in this very room uh, early next year, details still pending on that. But I want to just focus then on Paul's words to open Romans, the ninth chapter. Here's kind of the big picture, the, the, the major takeaway, if you will. 
What Paul is doing is discarding the old way of thinking that led his Jewish friends to have too much confidence in their salvation and introducing this new wonderful way of salvation that is now open to all. But only if Jesus is recognized as the Messiah. Romans 9 to 11 is really addressed to Jews who are now invited to join the Gentiles and to say yes to Jesus. Now, this is quite the offense, right? Uh, the, the Jews, as we see in, say, other texts in the New Testament, regard Gentiles as dogs, right? There's, there's no respect given there. It's like Rodney Dangerfield, no respect, no respect at all. And so now Paul is saying, well, all these Jews... Uh, are these uh, Gentiles, rather, are saved through the work of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he's inviting Jews to now participate in that work of salvation. This would have been a, a tremendous affront. He's saying that these Jews need to do the same things that the Gentiles did to be saved, that they cannot both reject the Jewish Messiah and claim Judaism as their reason for their confidence in their salvation. Okay, it's one or the other. Let me say that again. Paul's fellow Jews cannot both reject the Jewish Messiah and also claim that they are saved by virtue of their Judaism. And Paul seems to know in advance how the story is going to end for many of his fellow Jews because he was once in their shoes. Right? Remember that it was powerful revelation from Jesus Christ himself saying to Paul, why are you persecuting me, that led Paul to, you know, rethink what he was doing. Remember, it was Paul uh, who stood and watched as the first uh, Christian was ever killed for their faith. That was the martyrdom of Stephen. And probably that, that sin and that crime that Paul committed gives rise to the incredible humility uh, we see in Paul later in life. Paul understands grace so very well precisely because he knows how wrong it was to preside over the death of Stephen. And he knows that in spite of that, Jesus comes to him and gives him this mission to go and reach out to the Gentiles, to bring them, to graft them onto the tree, to pronounce that now the covenant of Abraham is being fulfilled that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, right? But Paul understands he knew the hardness of his own heart, and so he knows that in spite of tremendous light, his Jewish brothers and sisters will reject Christ and therefore will reject their own salvation. This grieves Paul, so he says to open Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, in my heart, because he knows that the entire model that the Jews, or at least some of the Jews uh, that are counting on, will fail them when the time of judgment comes. He knows that God, of course, did take on human flesh, that Jesus Christ did live a perfect life, that he died, that he was risen from the dead, that all the evidence uh, that is needed, that God, uh, that Jesus was God in human flesh, was there. But in spite of all of that, he knows that many of his Jewish brothers and sisters are going to still cling to the Mosaic covenant, believing that if they are obedient to the law, they can be saved, rather than the Abrahamic covenant, 
which is that Abraham will be the father of many nations, etc. Paul is so grieved and so selfless that he says he wishes he were the one who could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. In other words, he's saying, I wish I could be the one to sacrifice for my people. But he can't be. Jesus has already provided that sacrifice. And Jesus' death was the completion of a list, a litany almost, of good works that Paul says God has done for the Israelites. Right? He says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Maybe the patriarchy isn't so bad after all. Take that, Barbie. So, this is, these are all the things the Jews have been gifted with. Right? It's not to be ignored or trivialized. I mean, Paul knows the score. Okay? A lot of Christians today are relatively, dare I say, shallow, New Testament-only Christians. We think the Old Testament's full of nothing but law, and we only get the good news in the New Testament. That is not true. There's grace uh, on every page of the Old Testament. And look at that, that list that Paul gives. You were given the worship and the patriarchs, the law, the worship, the covenants, etc., Christ does not appear out of thin air. He doesn't come out of a vacuum. He is coming at the sort of, uh, I don't even know if I want to say the end, because we're not at the end yet, but he's coming at the end of this list anyway, right, of all these things that have been done. So this is at least a reminder again that there is a lot of good news in the Old Testament, and we are reminded here by Paul of the goodness of God's law. God's law is revealed in the Old Testament. Well, it, it the very least tells us what we're saved from, uh, and it tells us how to pursue quiet and peaceable lives now. So here's a question for us in our own day, which is, who are the entitled in our own day, those who assume too much, those who have the mistaken belief that maybe their last name or their status, or their money, or their fame, or their obedience will earn them special blessings from God. As a nation, we have been given tremendous light. You know, you see that list that Paul gives to the Israelites. What about our own nation? Have we not been given tremendous blessings? We are certainly the most prosperous, arguably, uh, at least historically, one of the most free countries uh, ever to be uh, put together. The rule of law, you know, it held pretty firm there for a while. Uh, these days, I'm not as sure. We have an unprecedented military power. The, every world currency depends upon ours. We have all of these blessings. But have we become insufferable? We don't think that we have much to learn from other people that everyone should just kind of strive to be like us. I'm starting to question that wisdom. In many ways, we are a very sick patient. We're unhealthy in ways that other nations are not. Nations without our prosperity, without our military power. Indeed, I envy those nations that still remain close to the earth in the way that they understand their lifestyles. 
that highly value marriage and family, that are not as rushed and busy as we are, that are not as taxed as we are, that are not as uptight as we are. In our personal lives, we must have the humility not to always assume that we know what is best or that our status as wealthy people or people from the right lineage or people with the right degree or a job at the best firm, like that means anything at all, because it does not. If we are certain that we are the chosen elite, we'll be humbled. And that's why Paul is so distraught. He sees that day approaching for his Jewish brethren. But if you trust in God, God will save you. In other words, trust in God, not in yourself. For those who trust in God, I think they can actually set aside to some degree these questions of predestination and election. They can know that they are saved by their trust in God, not because of who your parents are or even how perfectly you have obeyed the law. Might the Spirit of God give us as people and as a nation the humility to follow and serve him rather than assuming a place of power that puts us in the right. Amen.